Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. You know you told me on the phone one night that you were so angry with Tom Wales you would like to shoot the SOB. The individual was unusual. He was clearly very, very upset, very angry, pretty irrational. The suggestion was that perhaps the ultralight had been tampered with. And the sheriff told me that the body had been removed and had been badly burned. This is part one of episode 10, the unofficial official narrative. I'm your host, David Payne. Tonight, we are talking to two independent Case journalists. was recently the subject of a podcast. They're investigating the Wales murder in a new podcast called Somebody Somewhere. We believe their own investigation is what has drummed up new interest. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to welcome you all to the Tom Wales conference room here at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I also want to specially welcome... The Deputy Attorney General of the United States, Rod Rosenstein, here to see The attack on a law enforcement officer is an attack on our entire justice system. I want to assure you that this murder investigation is very active. The main investigation includes over 2,300 subfiles for specific investigative areas of interest and has generated over 51,000 documents, three times larger than the size of the Enron investigation of the early 2000s. Do you think this case will ever get solved? I hope so, but this is not like a white-collar crime piecing the documents together case. This is a murder, and murders tend to be solved very quickly or not at all. And the fact that there has been no arrest for 16 years suggests that it won't ever be solved. The 2001 murder of Assistant United States Attorney Tom Wales is both the most complex and simple affair we have ever known. The simple part is this. Someone walked up to his window, shot him twice, and sped away off Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. But tens of thousands of leads and tens of thousands of man hours later, we have a case file three times the size of one of the largest financial fraud cases in history. And no official answer to the question that started this podcast. Who killed Tom Wales, and why haven't they been brought to justice after all these years? For the past nine months now, Jody and I have been taking a decidedly contrarian view to the case, pouring over thousands of pages of documents and tracking down witnesses all over the United States. And yet, virtually every day, we continue to learn new facts that make us question our fundamental assumptions about what happened to Tom Wales and why. One thing that is for sure, if there is never an arrest in this case, it won't be for lack of effort on anyone's behalf. Although we are justifiably skeptical of the DOJ's most recent claims that the case is being worked as aggressively as it once was, 
What is undeniable is that this investigation has been the province of seasoned investigators for years. Here's what Seattle Times reporter Mike Carter told us about the FBI task force. Give me your read on the team, the people that were assigned to the case. They're all top, top drawer investigators, every last one of them. You know, Russ Fox, Ron Bone. Russ Fox is a tenacious investigator. All those guys over at SPD are just, we've all, you know, Ron Bone is a terrific investigator. And, you know, he ran the investigation for a long time. And he's gone now. I don't know if you recall the infamous trench coat bandit that up and down the West Coast for 15 years, Ron chased that guy. Finally caught him. He's a tenacious investigator. And when I spoke last fall to that tenacious Ron Bone, the lead investigator on this case for 12 years, he also expressed high praise for the team he had assembled and led. What did Bone say about the agents working on the case? He wanted to make sure we knew a couple things. One, that the team he had was the best and the brightest. You know, they're not average Joes. They had an all-star team. They had all the resources they could ever imagine. They had a brilliant prosecutor. That was the term he used for Steve Clymer. And, you know, they went after this case with dedication and vigor. But despite the strength of the team and their obvious dedication, they haven't been able to close the deal. Even though they have a clearly defined prime suspect, Steve Jackson, the alias we'd given the pilot. And I wanted to know Bone's take on why. What does he attribute not being able to solve the case? I mean, if they had all these smart guys working on the case and all the resources. Well, he acknowledged very clearly that they had a single focus on the pilot as early as three months in, that he was the suspect in the case. I think what was most striking about it was that he was not stridently saying that the pilot did it. Despite all this reporting that we've heard, you know, he basically said there are two possibilities here. The pilot did it or he didn't do it. And if he didn't do it, then in a lot of ways they're back to square one. And after tracking the FBI's efforts in this case, we found ourselves thinking this way, too. So much so that we began organizing our fact-finding into two buckets. Facts that supported the conclusion that the pilot was involved and facts that did not. And it was muddy. But if you parse the DOJ conference a couple of weeks ago, it seemed apparent that law enforcement still believes their facts support the former. Here were some of the telltale comments, first from the former U.S. Attorney Mike McKay, and then Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. There is somebody out there who has information. We need that citizen to come forward now. Maybe he overheard some talk in a bar after someone had a couple of drinks. Maybe she heard a little pillow talk. You need to come forward today. It is human nature to talk. Everybody talks to somebody. The people who are behind this, who did it, talked to somebody. Those people now have had the passage of times. Relationships have changed. I'm urging you, urging you to put some closure to this. These pillow talk and relationship comments seem choreographed to appeal to a specific person or persons around Steve Jackson, the pilot, to come forward in the case. There were rumors that his ex-wives had been subpoenaed to the grand jury, and obviously investigators would have questioned the woman or women who were with the pilot at the movies the night of the murder and at the Linden Airport before the Caratu ultralight crash. 
But there was also another choreographed element of the press conference that gave us pause. The night before the assembled cast of attorneys made their appearance in the Tom Wales conference room, a law enforcement source told the Seattle Times that the FBI now believes there was a conspiracy to kill Wales. Suggesting not only that someone might have overheard something, but that two or more people were involved in the planning or execution of it. In some respects, this theory is not especially shocking, given the call from the pilot's house near the time of the killing. But what was odd was that the FBI chose this moment and this format, a leak to Militesh and Carter outside of the scripted comments, to put forward that information. Of course, we don't know all of what the FBI knows or what their thinking is, but on this we could all agree. Somebody somewhere, other than the killer, definitely knows something about this murder. Now, if you're one of those podcast listeners who Googles everything you can about a case before you listen to the entire series, I'm guessing you might be locked in on the pilot, too. It is, in fact, the sole narrative out there in the mainstream press. And there's a reason for that. It is clear that the feds have been strategically using leaks to drive the main narrative of their case, either to influence public opinion or to put pressure on their suspect or witnesses to come forward. Carter and Militesh are seasoned reporters. And even though they, of course, know this too, it's how the game is played. In a tightly held case like this, you run with whatever you can get whenever you can get it. There's kind of a dance that goes on between us asking questions and pushing and kind of, you know, getting answers. So I think there's this kind of complicated relationship that goes on where you where, you know, the you might get a piece of information and call and ask about it and that might lead to another question that might lead to them to somebody saying something that might point you down another track. I think that you're accurate in saying that the focus of this investigation pretty quickly came down to the pilot. And once, especially early on, the first few years, we were following the feds, and that's where the feds were going. And so that's where we put most of our effort. There's only so many places information has come from in this story. Through our investigation, we had developed a pretty good idea of who those sources were, and also how invested they were in their belief that the prime suspect was the guy. But here's the thing that most of us know who have ever worked in any large organization. The immense pressure to deliver a high-priority target can result in clouded judgment by the people charged with delivering, as well as the jaded silence by those around them that don't want to be seen as rocking the boat, even if they think it's headed into a reef. Remember what happened to Special Agent in Charge Laura Laughlin when she tried to get new eyes on the case? When I first heard about that, I thought the whole situation might have resulted in more open-mindedness about the case. But in talking to Agent Ron Bone, it seemed to cause the opposite. So did he get into why she was reprimanded and what what was involved? Well, she, remember, she was going to reassign them off the case. And when, you know, they complained to Clymer and Clymer went up to Mueller and Mueller came back around to the U.S. attorney, you know, it set off a firestorm. And the takeaway was you can't mess with Ron Bone and his team. After that happened, they were completely untouchable and they could get whatever they want. 
And so, you know, the head of the office is essentially reprimanded by Clymer and Mueller, and that left them with a free hand. And so it was easy to see with the hindsight of time how the combination of a free hand, unlimited resources, immense pressure and strong personalities might metastasize into tunnel vision. Something former agent David Gomez candidly acknowledged. Again, I, I, I don't want to criticize the, the case agents themselves, but I do recognize the tunnel vision and the bias that can occur in this and, and other cases. So you have to admit that as a possibility. Do you think this case will ever get solved? I think it's absolutely possibly could be solved. But I, I think that you have to open yourselves up to a number of investigative avenues and you have to do a complete top-to-bottom review of that case. I agree on both fronts, because as a practical matter, even if you believe the pilot did it, at this point, you probably have an unwinnable and maybe even an unindictable case. Let me phrase it a different way. What is, what is the strongest case you could make against the pilot? Based on only what we know. Only on what you know. Proximity, motive would be their strongest ability. I think maybe some of the things that Bruce McClung told them. You've got a suspect who has opportunity. He was in the area. They have an individual who was prosecuted by their victim, who was angry at their victim. We know that who had sued after his prosecution because he was so put out by what had happened to him. It certainly made sense to me as a reporter. That was the information we were getting. Those were the leads that we followed. So it was true. The leads did make logical sense. But where did they in fact lead? We kept following these leads too and were able to find even more suspicious facts like McClung's story of the unexplained round of 380 ammunition, and of Steve Jackson advising McClung to go see his criminal lawyer right after the murder. Taken together with the known facts, there was a damning tapestry of suspicion around the pilot. And yet, as Steve Militesh noted, after all of that... This is fragmented. You can't really speak of it in some kind of clear-cut, linear fashion because it's fragmented and we don't know all they know. And at that point, there was indeed one big thing we didn't know if they knew. Or to be more precise, if they did know it, when did they know it? When did the feds learn their suspect was alleged to own a Makarov? If they learned it from McClung before they concluded their ballistic analysis, this might explain both the certainty of their conclusion that it was a Makarov, as well as their extensive efforts to find a specific federal arms replacement barrel since that was the only possible configuration that would explain the six left markings on the crime scene slugs. On the other hand, if McClung didn't tell investigators that Steve Jackson owned a Makarov before the ballistics were in, or if he never told them because he was being treated as a suspect as well, well, that's a pretty damning fact against the pilot, especially if you give credence to McClung's further detail that Jackson had ordered a Makarov replacement barrel before the murder at a sporting goods store in Tenasket. And to add more suspicion to the pilot, if he didn't do it, and he was one hell of an unlucky guy. What, he just happened to be in Las Vegas right before the Gidget letter was sent? Just like he just happened to be 10 minutes from Whale's house at 9 p.m. on the night of the murder? This was a perfect example of one of those facts, like so many in this case, 
that just kept shifting in our mind's eye depending on the day. If you were of the view that the phone call from the pilot's house meant he must have hired a hitman, then we couldn't figure out why the pilot would want to be anywhere near Whale's house the night of the murder. That seemed downright stupid. Or was it the bad luck of an innocent man? So like everything else, its meaning depended on whether you believe the pilot was involved or not. One thing was clear, however. There was another thing driving the FBI's investigation of the pilot. They thought he was shady. I'm curious what Bone said about his character, if he shed any more insight into that. The main thing he wanted me to know, and he kept stressing this over and over, was that was a liar. And he went out of his way to say that he knows is lying about many aspects of the case, that has been talking to people about the government's investigation of him. So what he mostly wanted to convey to me was if and when you talk to him, he's going to lie to you and, you know, buyer beware. But the most you could say of this diagnosis of the pilot's character was that while it was tantalizing, it wasn't evidence. In fact, the only alleged dishonest behavior that may have had any relevance to proving the case in the whale's death related back to the helicopter that Powell and the pilot were rebuilding. Here's Ken Caratu's partner, John Hearn, again. Oh, here's one thing that I forgot to tell you. The data tags that go on that Huey mm-hmm. were being changed. Tell us and about they, that. And they were getting them done at a jewelry store in Bellingham. This pal was got data tags made, and he'd go in and do the engraving on it. They were going to put a new data plate on it. And I seen those and I told him about it. And I might have went with Reichhardt to the jewelry store. I just went and said that jewelry store right there. I think I sat in the car. Do you remember the name of the jewelry store? No. That's another thing that caught my eye. Why are they doing this if they're going on a test flight? That was the biggest thing. So you were suspicious? Oh, hell yes. (laughs) That's the evilest thing you could do. Evil or not, and whether you could tar the pilot with his partner pal's brush... Bone would keep uncovering incidents like this in the pilot's past. And the suspicious plane crash of Ken Keratu, well, that just reinforced his worst perceptions. So if you're Ron Bone, you've got someone you like for the murder because of his threats against the victim. And you're getting hammered in the media, and probably by your superiors too. And you can't seem to find any physical evidence that links him to the crime it starts to make more sense why they were focused on securing a confession. Did Bone say anything about the pilot's unwillingness to come forward? One of the things we know from the investigative team is that reluctance to cooperate was a big driver in their suspicion of him. It's why they put so much focus and effort into him. They made a huge effort to get to cooperate before they pulled off the Mr. Big scenario. They went and told him, look, if we are wrong, please let us know. You know, if you want to come in with your attorney, come on in with your attorney. Bring as many as you want. You can tape it. You can record it. We can do it in your attorney's office. Basically, you dictate the terms. And through both his counsel and at separate times, they made those proffers and offers and basically stiff-armed them. And it wasn't just Bone being stiff-armed. It was the prosecutor, too. This case had a rock star AUSA assigned, 
the guy who convicted the police officers in the Rodney King assault. And this was looking to be a blemish on his unstained record, too. And now, maybe we can all better understand what they were thinking 10 years ago with the Mr. Big Hail Mary. So I'm no lawyer, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express. How do you pull this off because he's got legal counsel? How do you get around that? Well, it's easy to get around it. What's harder to do is make the statement admissible. So you can do it. It's like one of these things. Of course you can do it. But you do run into Justice Department guidelines. You run into state bar ethical guidelines. And from an admissibility standpoint, you run into these constitutional guidelines. What insight did Bone give around this operation? He confirmed that it was a high-end operation. They involved multiple people playing multiple roles in multiple cities across the country over multiple months. I mean, this was quite an elaborate operation that they executed. The other thing that he wanted me to know and emphasized over and over again, and probably to show how voluntary it was, was that once they set the hook in this case, that jumped in with two feet, that he really wanted to be part of this criminal organization that they had set up. Whether the pilot would agree with this assessment of his behavior is doubtful. We may never know. But one thing is for sure. He may never have to account for it. From an evidentiary standpoint, the case against the pilot probably died 10 years ago when the FBI dropped the Hail Mary pass. And after all of that, the scrutiny, the wiretaps, the home searches, the DNA swabs, the handwriting analysis, the Mr. Big Sting, it begged the question, what if the pilot didn't do it? We have reported on what we've been able to track down and elicit from a variety of sources over the years. And initially, I think that reporting, like the investigation, led towards this conclusion. But, you know, at this point, it's all up in the air as far as I'm concerned. But over the years, while that focus doesn't appear to have softened in the eyes of the FBI institution, it may have now in the guy who always had him in his sights, Agent Ron Bone. His point about that I thought was most interesting was this acknowledgement that he may not be the guy. That's kind of shocking. The FBI has spent a whole lot of time trying to put him in the box. Since 2002, he's been the guy. Right. He even said that the, he was the suspect when they did the Mr. Big sting. He was still the guy, and they believed that had that operation succeeded, that they would have had enough evidence to get an indictment. So for him now to be saying he may not be the guy is a remarkable statement. It's actually kind of huge. When you look at Tom Whale's life, it is completely understandable that the investigators said to themselves and each other, there's only one plausible suspect here. The problem with that is perhaps it created some sort of tunnel vision, that they didn't cast their net widely enough. And if Bone was having second thoughts, that told us that our instincts to cast the net wider may have been justified after all. But maybe we didn't have to cast the net too much wider. Because the thing that was bugging me, the thing that was keeping me awake at night, 
was the randomness of this Bell helicopter prosecution. Because Tom Wales may have eventually dismissed the case against the pilot, but he couldn't unring the bell. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Next time, on the season one finale of Somebody Somewhere. As soon as I said that, he jumps up out of his chair. He starts pounding on the table with his fist. The government was being led down the primrose path. And then the next thing I know, here's two FBI guys that comes down to my shop. Did they ask you if you killed Tom Wales? The FBI is like a dog with a bone. Nobody wants to admit a mistake. Maybe we can change, we sure can't stay the same. Cause life's a foolish, foolish game. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week, they're bringing their A-game, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake, and original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. We'll find our place in this living chain. We're glad the same. Yeah, life's a foolish, foolish game. Life's a foolish game. Hey, life's a foolish game. Life's a foolish game.